That Burn Podcast is brought to you by Bogey Dope. Interested in career in aviation, whether that be the military or civilian aviation, Bogey Dope has the instructors. They have the courseware to get you started and launch your aviation path. Click the link down below and you can use the code Afterburn for 5% off. Viper 01 B5, the Restrictor 6002 is still active. Viper 1 targeted. Welcome and thanks for listening in. My guest today is Croc, who is a Viper driver and the president of Guns Garen Memorial Foundation. Rick Guns Garen was an F-16 pilot. He was a weapons instructor at McIntyre Air National Guard Base. And unfortunately in July of 2020, he passed away. Several of his squadron mates like Croc, friends and family came together to found the Guns Garen Memorial Foundation. They have two objectives, to help veterans and get youth involved in aviation. They were kind enough to invite me and E3 Aviation Association up to their annual golf tournament, where one, we were able to meet a lot of people that are helping, which is very cool to see and humbling. And then two, capture a lot of stories about who Guns was, what the foundation is doing. But over the next few weeks, you're going to hear several podcasts about the Guns Garen Memorial Foundation. Another aspect that I'm really excited about is E3 Aviation Association. We're launching here in the next few weeks. And if you've been following me on social media, you probably have seen me post once or twice about E3 Aviation Association. Well, right after our launch, we're rolling into Sun and Fun, which is the second largest air show in the country and a phenomenal air show at that. And we're excited to be the title sponsors this year at Sun and Fun. Guns Gear Memorial Foundation, they're joining in with us. A portion of the proceeds go directly back into the foundation to help veterans and to help youth get involved in aviation. You can click the link down below. You can join us. There are a limited number of spots. It's an air-conditioned chalet that you'll have access to all week. Food, beverages. The exciting part, we're going to have tons of guests rolling through for live Q&As, meet and greets, etc. From Mustang pilots, F-35 pilots, F-16 pilots, mechanics, airline pilots, and everything in between aviation. So you don't want to miss out. Again, you can click the link down below. Join us at Sun and Fun this year for a VIP experience. You won't regret it. Again, a portion of those proceeds go directly back into the Guns Gear Memorial Foundation. So check that out down below. With all that being said, let's jump into the episode with Croc. Dude, Croc, thanks for joining me on the podcast, man. It's uh, it's good to have you here. We got a whole series coming about the Guns Garen Foundation. But this is a little bit more about you and obviously how you tie into it as well, because you're going to be quite active uh, when the podcast series drops when we did up there at um, Fort Jackson. This is not a trap. This is going to be the first and only time probably in your Air Force career that when someone says, tell me about yourself, I really want you to tell me about yourself. <laughs> so can you kind of give me the 60 to 90 second elevator pitch of who you are, a little bit of background? Yeah, sure. We're, we're, we're excited, uh, to be a part of what you're doing, Rain. So thanks right off the bat for hosting GGMF at the golf tournament, uh, on your podcast and, and helping us get the word out with what we're doing through the foundation. But a little bit, I think what we can tie together today is a little bit of like the journey that brought us to the point what, which we captured like last week in that, that podcast series. So, uh, like you said, my name is Croc Atherton. I, I grew up in Texas, joined the Air Force, uh, went through the Air Force Academy I commissioned, uh, which I know you'll probably promote that more than anything in this entire series, <laughs> right? 
Uh, yeah, I mean, actually, we can we could stop there. So I think we're good. We got everything we need. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, exactly, dude. And and really, that was kind of the the start to to where we're at today, which was you know from there going to to pilot training and and at Laughlin. Um, that was in two thousand nine into two thousand ten, and then from there stayed as a, a T six uh, FAPE. So I guess we share that in common. We we're both FAPEs. Uh, winning yeah exactly <laughs> and that was definitely <laughs> that was like an interesting time in the air force well i guess everything's an interesting time when it comes to the air force but it was like when when fighters were at a at, at a premium and it was it was probably a, a blessing in disguise to sit in a holding pattern there for four and a half years while i waited to, to figure out um what was going to happen next from there we we transitioned uh into the f-16 to fly the the mighty viper went to luke air force base which was uh, an absolute blast um and then had the privilege of of going out to mcintyre where um i've been since up until this last year so i spent quite a while out there and um and now at 10th air force back here in fort worth so kind of moved back to to where i grew up so yeah, that's a good journey. But I was going to say, it's kind of amazing that you they sent you to McIntyre as a FAPE. And I know that wasn't in the calculus. I wonder today, or at some point, I think that has been in the calculus, being a dude who's senior, who then at their end of the pilot training commitment is pretty close to moving from that first assignment in the Viper at McIntyre, where you can get out and separate and become a guardsman there. Yeah, I mean, I guess it, it is a lot in life, just luck and timing a little bit, right? Um, and, you know, if, if you would have told me that when I was sitting in, in Del Rio, my first year as a FAPE, I would have been like, dude, there's no way. Like, my Air Force career has already started, like, in the without any luck, you know? Like, I have to teach, <laughs> I have to teach kids how to fly for five years in Del Rio, but it ended up working out great. I want to back up real quick. What led you to go want to be a pilot and want to go into the air force? Yeah, that's a great question. So I grew up, uh, I, I've, you know, a great mom and dad, my dad served 25, 22 years in the air force. He was, uh, a crew chief on, uh, F4s and then on F16s. So I can, I can remember as a kid going out to the, you know, the line shack and just watching vipers at Masawa take off, for, you know, like a, a night ball. Um, I was, yeah, probably six or seven at that time. And just seeing that, I was like, dude, this is what I want to do, man. This is freaking awesome. And it, it's weird because, you know, one of the tails that was actually at Masawa at that time before they transitioned to block fifties, they moved back into Luke and I actually flew that same tail in the B course, like one of the same tails that had been there. So it could have been one of the jets I'd seen like growing up as a kid. That's always cool to hear those stories. You know, if you're surrounded by it, the the PK, the probability there is usually a little bit higher that you might get bit by the bug or make a flip, you know, flip side like you want nothing to do with it. So it's cool to hear that lineage. It is definitely a lineage. My, my grandfather was in the Air Force. You know, my dad was uh, grandfather on both sides served in the military. So, you know, I, I think there's there's something where you're constantly being raised and like you know, bred into uh, a sense of service. It, it, it's, you know, it's something that is being instilled in you, so to speak, as a young, in a, at a young age, you know? So you obviously were surrounded by it, but there's a lot that happens between being like, Hey, that's pretty cool. And wanting to 
figure out one, how to go do it and then going to do it. Like when was it, did it really kick into gear that, Hey, I want to go to the air force Academy and you started figuring out all the requirements to do that. What, what was that like? Yeah. So when I was, uh, when I was in high school, one of the, the teachers that I had her, uh, her husband flew with the spads out here in Fort Worth, K scored Knudsen, uh, for those of you that know him. So he, he showed up one day to school at school to like pick up his kids. And I like walked up to him. I think it was like a freshman in high school. And I'm like, dude, like, what do you do? And he's like, I'm a Viper pilot in Fort Worth. Like, who are you? And I'm like, dude, like, I want to like have that same job. Like, I want to be you one day, basically. How do I do that? And so he, he's really like, you know, I still talk to him quite frequently today. He's been a mentor ever since then. Um, and he went on to do great things, but really he was the one that said, all right, dude, step number one, like you're going to apply to go to the air force Academy. If you don't get in there, you're going to go to, uh, do ROTC. Like this is, that is your best shot at becoming a pilot. And so he kind of gave me like the different options and I kind of just followed his lead, man, like every step of the way. Dude, having a mentor is, is key. And that's what, you know, I've tell a lot of guys who or gals who want to go pursue this, but you know, find someone who has done it right. Sure. And then lean on them. Hopefully they'll bring you under their wing and guide you kind of through the process. So don't go with someone through, but another thing too, not that, I mean, the internet was obviously around when we were going through doing this, but it was limited. You know, you're not doing applications online. Yeah. I think the resources were still limited. YouTube wasn't real. YouTube yeah. existed, but you know, now the amount of information that's out there, I do, I mean, personally, and this, I should be better about it, but I often, I'll get asked a lot like, Hey, how do I be a fighter pilot or how do I become a pilot? How do I join the air force? There are some like basic questions and answers out there that you can find. And so when you find a mentor, like hopefully you've done a little bit of prep that have some of the basic questions and there might be some nuances that you need to get some guidance in there with, but there's so much information out there that you can gather alone. What, what advice am I, am I off the reservation or do you have any advice for someone who wants to go do this? Yeah. I mean, we deal with that like in the the foundation a little bit. I mean, that's one of the pieces is where we're trying to inspire like the next generation of pilots. And really that's like, that's the education piece. So like my, my advice to, to anybody who's interested in, in getting serious about it is like, number one, like if, if you're in, at the high school age, like give yourself options. Like that was the biggest thing that case word. And, and really there was another really good mentor of mine, Tang Garfield. Um, they were like, do you always want to have options? And so the way that you set yourself up to have options is you, you apply yourself and you succeed with where you're at. And that gives you options for the next step. And so it was the same thing that I carried into to pilot training from uh after graduating the at the academy was like the only way you're gonna have the option to be a fighter pilot is like to do well in pilot training and so succeed at where you're at and that gives you options for your future yeah i've always heard the term you know be the literally be the best at everything you do which is easier said than done but you know lay it out on the table and like you have to win if you're going to be competing at, at that level it's it is it's a long road the other piece too that I think I'm similar to you early on. I was fortunate, right. To get surrounded by aviation and know this is what I want to go do. And I know you mentioned something of the foundation that most kids aren't getting exposed to aviation through the study you guys did like until late high school. 
But really, if you're going to go to the academy, if you're going to do ROTC, like you can join ROTC kind of late sometimes. Again, it depends on the year and what's available. But really, it's those years like late middle school, high school, where you really have to be setting yourself up for success, good GPA, extracurricular activities. So the runway starts getting short pretty quick. And I know you're at McIntyre and people get hired to fly fighters or planes period at Garden Reserve units across the country late in the game, like in their early 30s. But that's pretty rare. Like the runway starts running out fairly quickly. And I think if you blink, you don't really realize just how fast it can go by. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, that, that's definitely something that um, that they both taught me as well. Those two mentors was like, don't convince yourself that you're out of the fight. Like, you know, don't don't take yourself like show some adversity within and determination within what you want to do in life. And don't convince yourself too early that you're actually out of the fight. Keep fighting. So, you know, there were, there were definitely times, uh, throughout my career where, you know, like, it's like, dude, you're not going to be able to do this. And it's like, I would call those, those two bros and be like, Hey man, like, I don't think it's going to work out. And they would be like, yeah, it is dude. I think you're going to let one dude who says no convince you that you don't want to be like a fighter pilot. And I'm like, well, good point. So there's, there's different, you know, it's like too often I, you see kids, uh, or they're really like college age, you know, young adults, they're, they're convinced like, no, man, this one recruiter told me no. So like, it's never going to work out or like this, you know, I have bad eyesight. So like, I'm, you know, it's never going to happen. And it's like, dude, you gotta, if if you want it, you gotta be determined and fight for it. Yeah. I think that's a really good point. I actually had someone message me yesterday saying they were pursuing the Navy because the Navy recruiter is more receptive. They want to be a pilot kind of going down that path. And I worked with recruiters for quite a while toward, you know, my last part of active duty career doing the demo piece and then in the reserves. And I think people have to realize that one, if you're an outsider trying to get on the in, you're trying to figure out what the battle space looks like, which for a recruiter, I mean, predominantly they're worried about hitting their end of the month numbers. Like that is just a fact of life. So if you're not a solution for them to hit their end of the month numbers, get the number of, you know, boots into basic training, you're not really solving their problem. And while they, and they have limited amount of resources and time. So sometimes right place, right time, you know, you get the right recruiter who can help you out, but yes, like don't take no for an answer. Like there's always a path. And if you want it, like you really have to go out there and figure out how to get there because again, no one cares about your career more than you do. So you know, if you're going to sit idly by, that's the results you're going to get. It's, it's interesting that you would, you would bring that up. So like one of the, one of the things that, uh, it's, it's funny looking back, like K squared and I, we laugh about this dude. And I'm going to, I'll tell you this quick story and it's, it's hilarious. Like looking back. So it's my, my junior year of high school. Um, and he, he has me over to his house for dinner and he goes, dude, I want to pitch something to you. And you need to go to your high school guidance counselor and convince her that this is a good idea. I'm like, all right, what do you got? He's like, dude, you're going to do an internship at the fighter squadron. And at the time he was the fighter squadron commander. He's like, you're going to do an internship at my fighter squadron and come like work for me. And I'm like an internship. Like normally like you do an internship, like you're going to get hired. I'm like, dude, I'm like 15 years old. Like what? He's like, no man. Like, 
what we're really going to do is you're going to sit in the bar, you're going to make corn, you're going to make coffee, and you're going to talk to every single one of the dudes that flies for me. And you're going to figure out like what their background is, what their story is, how they like got to where they're at at, at this point in life. And it's going to give you perspective at a very young age of, of all the different ways you can do it, like become a fighter pilot. But it's also going to help you understand like what the culture is like a little bit more. And so I went to my guidance counselor. I was like, hey, like uh, this lieutenant colonel wants me to like internship for like the Air Force. And she's like, oh, yeah, that's awesome. So I had every Monday, Wednesday, Friday, the, all the afternoon periods off. And I'd, I'd drive out to the fighter squadron. And I, as a 15-year-old kid, dude, I would just sit in the, the bar like and make corn and coffee all day long. Uh, I, I would like cl- clean the bar. Like I can remember like dudes walking in and being like, who are you clean the bar, dude? It's like gross in here. So I was like, you know, like <laughs> <That's> <laughs> it awesome. was great, man. And like over time, I do that for a whole entire year over time. Like I, I got to like become friends with these dudes who were experienced fighter pilots and they just gotten back from an Afghanistan deployment. So I got to hear like a lot of those stories and that, that, that like internship or that experience really is what it was, was priceless, man. I mean, like 15 year old kid hanging out in a fighter squadron for a year. It was awesome. You know, you, you got to see how everything That's worked. Incredible. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah. It was cool. Well, and the fact, I mean, yeah, you nailed with nailed it with a bunch of mentors and, and just being a sponge soaking stuff up in the environment you want to be in. That's pretty, I was mean, pretty fortunate. Again, like, case squared having a guy like that who's willing to take you under his wing and essentially go to bat and make things happen for you is pretty huge not everyone has that but still like it didn't just fall in your lap and that's the thing the important piece is you like you went out and put put yourself out there and made the effort and showed the dedication showed like that you had you wanted to go do this and i think by doing that showing up and not just trying to I guess, have someone else do everything for you. People want to help people out who are passionate and want to go succeed and try and do something hard, I think. Well, all right. So, man, you go Air Force Academy. Again, I know that's probably the highlight of this podcast episode, (laughs) especially when we get Baldy on his episode. Maybe we get you guys together and you can just talk (laughs) Air Force Academy stuff. I don't even know what you guys do up there. But um, Laughlin, so... You know, you and I both FAPES, first assignment instructor pilots, again, for those who just love the acronyms. I think you you hit the nail on the head. It was kind of a blessing in disguise in that time period, at least it ended up being that way because fighters were really limited. So having another, I guess, swing at the swing at the or you know, swing at the bat there was was pretty helpful. How was your time in old Del Rio? Uh I mean, looking back, it was you could find good good parts about it. I mean, Del Rio is like kind of a, uh, for those who don't know where Del Rio, Texas is, uh, it's right on the border as far south in Texas as you can go. And it's like a good solid four hours from like anywhere, like humanity. Isn't the base right there on the border? Like you have to be careful not to fly into Mexico. Yeah. One of the, I mean, the VFR arrival, if it's still the same, I haven't been there in a while, but like you, you fly down the Rio Grande is like, you leave the airspace and you basically like fly until you hit the river. And as a student, you're like, dude, I hope this is the right river, you know, because like you don't know what's going on <laughs> and you fly down the river until you get to the traffic pattern. 
Um, it's right on the border. Um, it was looking back. It's, it's like one of the, you know, like Baldy and I, we laugh about it. It's like, dude, we want to, we want to like go meet the dude who came up with the concept of a first assignment instructor pilot, because it's like one of the, the most, uh, it's the coolest thing you could do. Like you have very little responsibility other than to like teach basic flying, which, you know, uh, for your bros that are going out that are graduating pilot training that are learning like weapon systems and how to employ the weapon system. Like you're doing something that's like, it's challenging because it's a lot of work and, and there's a lot of throughput, but at the same time, man, like the air force has given you that asset to like, to do basically like you go cross country on a weekend and you're like, Oh, well, see you guys. Like I just graduated pilot training two weeks ago. I'll see you like next weekend, you know? Like, thanks for the airplane. Yeah. I mean, you as a first lieutenant, you know, you could be, what, 24, 25, and then you have a brand new lieutenant going through pilot training and they give you a four, six million dollar asset to just go wherever. I, I found you have a lot more, you have a lot of responsibility that just kind of gets chopped, chopped off to you versus going like not you go to the Viper route, of the course, like you have a lot of responsibility. You got a big asset, a lot of learning the weapon systems. It's still, it's obviously a lot of responsibility, but yeah, it's just, it's unique in that sense. It would be interesting to hear the, the concept behind that. And I'm sure it's purely just based on numbers. Yeah. I think one of the things that teaches you how to do like really young is how to, to make young in your, your flying career is how to make decisions like pretty quickly because, you know, if you're a young wingman and they show up to a fighter squadron, like, yeah, you're going to make a couple like small decisions, but at the end of the day, you're like a wingman in a four ship and there's like an IP that's going to tell you what to do. And you got to figure out how to like execute it as, as a, a young instructor pilot. It's like, dude, you're the only one that's going to like make the decision for yourself. No one's like telling you what to do. And so I thought that was, that was a really valuable lesson that I learned like young in my flying career is like how to be decisive and like, well, we'll hope this is the right decision. And if it's not like, I'm gonna have to figure out how to fix it. Yeah. You get handed the leash pretty, pretty early there. And I think that's a good point with it because yeah, it's usually just you versus you normally would have two flight leads or an instructor pilot in the formation. And it could just be a bunch of fapes out there, a bunch of young lieutenants raging around the country, dealing with weather or emergencies, et cetera. So it's kind of cool. Again, it's not like I don't know. I don't. I think is putting it down as their first choice to to hang around and teach pilot training, but um, it was it ended up being a pretty good experience for me. I think Columbus, Mississippi, might have been a slightly better spot. Not quite there on, on the border town, but you know, teach their own. No one's picking it, but I think it ends up turn turning out all right. Yeah, I I think it, it gives you airmanship. You can rack up the airmanship a little bit faster because you're one you're flying non-stop i mean i think probably your first year as a fave feels like you're probably at least double turning if not triple turning a few times a week like are you double turning every day and then you might triple turn a couple times you really get a rack up rack up the hours and go out there and do it did you guys have the out program that aviation leadership program with all the foreign national students at laughlin we did yes was that just yeah yeah did you get to experience some really good stuff with uh, some Alp, Alpsters going through? Dude, we were going into, this is actually Baldy and I were on the same cross country. We had this uh, idea that we were going to fly from Del Rio to Phoenix. Um, 
which doesn't seem like it would be that far of a flight, but it actually is an extremely far flight in a T6 when you can't cross into Mexico. So we're both with uh, Saudi uh, students. And uh, it's, it's just a challenge, man. Like you're not speaking the same language. I would say like there's, there's probably like some like differences in how they're understanding like instruction and things like that, like different cultural barriers. And so I, dude, it was hilarious. Uh, we're on the ground in El Paso getting ready to do our second leg into to Phoenix. Cause we just want to like go hang out and party in Phoenix. And um, I'm like, dude, I'm worried about going into this like class B airspace with these kids. Cause they're horrible. Like at talking on the radio and Baldy's like, He's like, dude, let's, let's just give him like, let's tell him like, you've got one radio call, like one radio call. And if you screwed up, like we're taking the radios and dude, I'll, I'll never forget it. We're, we're both in line to, to shoot the ILS into Phoenix international. And there's like probably 69 Southwest jets and American jets, you know, 737s trying to get in. It's their arrival window. So they've got like, probably six downwinds to then go to like six dog legs to final. And they're just joining people on the visual. And so the controller, this is his first radio call in class B airspace. The controller goes, uh, you know, whatever our call sign was Texan, you know, zero one. Do you see the seven thirty seven in front of you? Follow them, clear the visual runway two six into Phoenix. And he goes, yep, I see him. And I'm like, I, I look like, over the intercom, I say like, which 737 bro. And he's like, well, yeah, I see like 10 of them. And I'm like, so which one are you going to follow? And he's like, I don't know. That's a great question. <laughs> so I was like, Oh my God. This <laughs> so is like where you, that's where awesome. you don't want to be in your life right now. I ended up working out. I, so. Yeah. Well, yeah. Look at you now. I mean, look where you've gone and, and just sitting here like a champion. Um, <laughs> I've heard, I don't think I ever went into the busiest place I went into was Nashville. And I definitely remember my student like um, Ryan Parrish. Great dude. He's still out there. Always a great dude. Uh, the controller was not happy with him. Like we're on this ILS at night, just complete, completely gumming it up for, you know, probably five jets they have on, on arrival there. And the, the controller's like, well, I'll, I'll see you next time. And he's like, Oh, see you next time. I'm like, you're not picking up. Uh, that guy is really not happy with you right now. And for those in the aviation world, you probably can figure that out. But the I've had heard stories like you guys always like out west, Del Rio and Vance going into Phoenix Sky Harbor. My buddy popped the tire on the runway there, which I don't even know like what the the madness that probably caused and ensued for ATC. I'm surprised they let Air Force jets still go into Sky Harbor. Dude, it definitely it definitely makes him mad. Like looking back on it, I'm like, dude, that was like one of the dumbest choices I've ever made in my life. Like that is probably got to be one of the busiest airports in the country. I, I can remember that same time we landed and like the controller is like exit next taxiway. And the student's like, yeah, I'm going to do it. I'm like, like hell, you're going to do it. Like, dude, we're still going like a, a hundred knots. You're not going to try and like get off on a high speed taxiway, so to speak. I mean, it was just, it was dumb. Like it was really my fault. Like it was, it was stupid to even go in there. Well, yeah. So they, they, I guess technically they can't stop you from doing it. It's just, 
ill-advised, but T6, I mean, I don't know. What were you doing? Like 110 knots? I don't even know what, what you shot the approach at on T6. I don't remember that, but try and forget all that. Most big airport. Yeah, that penguin fell off the iceberg a long time ago. But I mean, most big airports, they want you like 180 knots, 170 knots to the final approach fix. And while you can do that in the T6, if you have a international student who's not really well versed and it's his first like cross country, it's probably not the time for him to be shooting an ILS well above the speeds he's normally practicing. Yeah. It's like, hey, man, uh, hey, Phoenix, can I get the full procedure into your busiest runway? And they're like, no, you're cleared the visual, dude. <laughs> get, get, get out of here. We're gonna, And we're going to check this one off as an ILS for your logbook. Yeah, so exactly. Make it happen. Transition to the Viper. How was that for you? Yeah, I, I, going through the B course at Luke was, uh, I, it was awesome. I mean, went through the 309th. It was, um, it, it was probably the most fun. I've ever had flying like period dot. It was, it was just great, man. The weather's great. The airspace is great. The jets, like they were old, but like it was, it, it was, it was during that time when all the D models like were, were out of commission because they had some laundron issue or something like that. So I, I didn't fly like a D model at all in the B course. Oh, that's amazing. Dude, so my first flight like that's, in the Viper amazing. was single C. And I was like, dude, this is the coolest thing you could ever do in your life. Like I'm flying an F-16. I have no clue what I'm doing. And I'm doing it like with nobody else. That's amazing. <laughs> that's awesome. You know, I was talking. So when I did the demo piece, you know, I was flying a lot of guys and gals in the backseat, putting them through the demo. Most were you know, maintainers. Uh, maybe some safety observers, but I knew remember like one particular, I flew Bender in the backseat and what, you know, it was like flight control check. I, was, I did it differently than the way he did it. I did it slightly out of sequence. It's like, ah, oh, I never thought about that. And you know, it's kind of weird. Like if you think about it, essentially in the B course, well, you know, D model rides, I, a handful of D model rides and pass like the first couple ones. The instructor is not saying anything. So if your flow is like a little bit different, no one ever knows the difference. And then it's like not until you like very rarely we like, hey, how do you do that or something? Again, there's not not that much to it, but it's interesting. Like later on down the road, you're like, oh, dude, I I never do it that way. But yeah, you you don't even have that experience. Yeah, it it is. It, oh, it's interesting to think through that. It's like you're all doing the same mission and you're all, you know, you're on the same page and it, it, everything is so like, you know, you spend a lot of time making sure your foreship tactically knows everything, every part of the game plan you're going to execute, but how you get to the, the actual like vault time or the fights on call, like is a lot different for, <laughs> it, it's different for everybody, you know? Yeah. Which is, it's kind of wild to think that, but I mean, that's the future. Obviously, the Raptors been doing it for a little while. You know, they were putting their lieutenants through the F-16 for like four or five rides. And they realized, like, well, we don't need to do this. F-35 doesn't even mess with it anymore. So turns out the simulators are good enough and the planes are smart enough to help even guys like me and you figure out how to fly them. Did you want to go to McIntyre? Was that one of your top choices out of the B course? Yeah. So, I mean, it was kind of through that experience of having like what we talked about, like those mentors where they were like, dude, like this, that, that would be, um, the garden reserve is a great option. 
was was kind of you know everyone likes everyone has their own flavor of the day but it's just a great thing that not a lot of people know about you know yeah i guess we, we should peel that onion back just a little bit because we're i'm definitely making some assumptions that people understand how the air force guard and reserve works can you tell me just a little bit one let's start with how did your b course divvy up the assignments because i think a lot of people will be interested to know usually how people flow out of the b course to their bases and then talk to me like tfi and how that that piece works yeah so i mean the the tfi functionality is is something that um you know the the active duty uses um to to basically integrate the the guard and reserve into that like total force concept so you're going to have um active duty you know pilots and personnel that are at a guard or reserve base depending on what type of association it is and, and really that's to to season some of your younger guys because there definitely is a lot of experience usually at a guard or reserve base you know you got the same you got a crew chief who's wor- worked on the same jet for like 20 years which is like unheard of uh and so it's a good place to send young talent like to basically to to make sure they're being taught the right way and it's it's a good way to integrate different perspectives so um you'll see like mcintyre was a little bit different because we had like you know a, a full squadron of active duty so there was you know six to nine pilots with you know 100 and you know 57 maintainers and they had their own commander and um they all kind of integrated into the structure of the south carolina air national guard which is cool man um it definitely brings like a lot of like fresh, it, it gives that like that fresh blood through the squadron, like where some guard units and some reserve units, you know, you haven't hired a guy in like 10 years and it's like, oh gosh, like the lowest ranking dude here is like an 05, like sweet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. All, and they're all weapons officers. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, yeah, I know I'm the new guy and no, I did not fly in Vietnam. So you know <laughs> <laughs> right that's so tfi total force integration and again i think you know there's a lot that goes into the viper because the viper more vipers flying around probably the world than any other fighter definitely more in the air force but our guard and reserve components typically are hiring guys who have completed their active duty pilot training commitment. So they're like 13 years from their active duty time, but they also hire within. So brand new ones coming off the street. It's like bogey dope sponsors this podcast, but you know, those guys kind of help people guide, figure out what units are hiring and how to go through that process. So you can be a brand new dude or dude that, that, that goes that path, but active duty saw, Hey, you know, we need to absorb and create more fighter pilots. The garden reserve is a great way to, Glean some of that experience. How did it, how did your B course figure out who's going where? Were you the senior ranking officer? I was, yeah. Um, so I can't, I honestly cannot remember how we did it. <laughs> like it seems that yours is probably, I mean, I think we actually did it like in, I don't know if this could be a part of the podcast, dude. I think we did it at like a roll call and it was complete debauchery. <laughs> But I mean, I think like every a lot of people are surprised to find that like it depends on the unit and the commander. Like my commander said, "Hey, you guys figure it out amongst yourselves." And we were civilized and kind of like everyone wanted something different. 
So it more or less worked out. Like there was a little friction, but I mean, it's from dice to paying people off. It's all sorts of stuff. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think we did do, there was some dice involved. Um, There's probably like a bottle of Jack involved, but everyone knew like the, uh, that was, uh, we had an awesome B course class, dude. I mean, the, the, the bros that were in that class were they've all most all of them have gone into the f-35 but like everyone was we were all good friends which made you know the the b course even more enjoyable like we'd hang out like outside of just the squadron um everyone had like a a really good bar act which like you know is important as a young lieutenant uh to kind of know and want to hang out and like listen to like senior leaders and we had great great ips um and so I think when it, it got to that time of figuring out where everyone was going to go, like everyone was just kind of cool with like how the pieces like of the puzzle were coming together. And they were like, yeah, man, like it, it, it was no like everyone wanted Aviano and there was only like one spot type deal. Um, so it ended up working out. It, it was, I think one, I think two Two bros in the the class like rolled off dice to see who was going to go to Aviano versus Spangolan, and it was like, all right, whatever. We had it. I think it was pretty much everyone was set except for two guys, and I forget. I think it came down to some dice and whatever. It worked out in the end, you know. Showed up at McIntyre, so there is, or there at that time, and still is. There was an active duty component already established at McIntyre because. I'm trying to think when the TFI kind of sending people to this, it was like, Hey, you're the one active duty dude showing up. No real contingent there. And it's, it's kind of grown to more of an established process where you're showing up when it was an active duty squadron that was associated with McIntyre. Correct. Uh, yeah. So I actually, you know, full disclosure on that. Like I showed up as a guardsman. So I had, I got out of the active duty right after being a faith. Oh, how'd you do that? So they were like basically letting people out early. So like I, I was like, yeah, no kidding. And that was that was kind of the the advice I had gotten from some other people. Were like, dude, there's not a lot of fighters like floating around. I think out of the ten fapes that were in my class, like we had like one or two fighters. And so they're like, you probably have no a, a better shot at being a fighter pilot if you you just get out early and try and get a guard job. While you were fate, were you rushing McIntyre? Uh, I would say like at the very end, I, I put a resume together, was getting out of the air force and went to every single CONUS fighter unit that was guard or reserve and just showed up and was like, Hey man, like if you guys are hiring, like I'm already an experienced pilot. All I need to do is like go through the B course or whatever FT, FTU you have like formal training course. Uh, so I'm, I was kind of a known quantity and, you know, McIntyre, uh, gave me the opportunity. Like they gave me the shot to, to basically be a fighter pilot, which was awesome. That's awesome. I didn't know that. What year was it that, uh, you got out of active duty? 2014. That's the thing too. You know, the air force does these like ebbs and flows with, uh, force shaping and reductions and voluntary separations or force separations. And yeah, I think COVID, it's like, hey, we're good. We got too many people. And that started now, you know, the pendulum has swung back and they're not hitting their recruiting numbers, et cetera. So it's always interesting to hear stories like that. 
that's cool. Yeah, so definitely a different path than most then. Yeah, I'd say it's pretty unique. Was Baldy the same way? I don't want to spoil his episode, but I haven't talked to him yet. No, he uh, he stayed active duty up until I think the tenure point. Um, whenever his commitment was done, his full pilot training commitment. But our, our career is still like uh, almost 100% mirrored each other, which is pretty unique as well. Gotcha. Well, everything I said in the beginning of the episode about, you know, sending a, a senior guy towards him as pilot training commitment to TFI squadron, I was surprised. That's now null and void that I figured out you're already out of active duty. But um, showing up McIntyre, how was that? It was awesome, man. I mean, McIntyre, the Swamp Foxes, uh, you know, I, I would say as far as from my perspective, but it's, you know, it's probably not shared by another block 50, uh, <laughs> block 50 dude. Like it's the best fighter squadron, like in the, in the cap dude. I mean, the, the level of talent that's there, the level of like execution, the level of like absolute, like, you know, commitment to, to making sure that like everything is being executed at the, at the highest standard. And so walking into that, like as a young, you know, uh, you know, I don't know if you know Oscar Meyer, but like he's he's fairly like renowned, like in the Viper community. He he told me like, dude, he swore me in at McIntyre and was basically like, don't screw it up. Like, you know, it's like, all right, man, I'll do my best. And it, it instills with you like at a very like young age, uh, relatively speaking within the jet, like of how to do things the right way, how to work hard, how to like, you know, really strive to be better every day that you're flying the Viper. You know, I'm slightly biased or maybe it's because I'm, you know, I mean, I spent all my Viper time in South Carolina, 10 miles down the road at Shaw. And then I know so many guys in that unit, but a lot of those guys were the ones that kind of shaped and molded my career, you know, like, um, and so I, I think it's, it's probably a fair statement to say, you know, I'm just thinking, like the guys that are in there and, you know, hanging out with last weekend, just how sharp they are and dedicated they are to it, you know, poker, hide those guys. Poker is my weapons officer on our deployment. Hyde was our wing weapons officer. I think Hyde is like the most tactical dude I've ever met and eats, breathes and leaves, you know, lives tactics. Uh, but you know, great dudes. And then, yeah, just everyone else there too. So, um, yeah, that's a pretty good spot to land, I think, for a dude who's brand new to the Viper and getting molded by some of the best dudes that are out there. That's pretty cool. Where where was your first deployment? So, uh, 2018, we went to uh, Jabber in Kuwait, and um, we were mainly doing, that was kind of like right at the end of the the ISIS, like right before the last like push to take out ISIS, but like right in the middle time, like of, Hey, everything's starting to wind down. Like we think we've, we've got this under control and it was, you know, a lot of the stuff like right after the Syrian civil war. So as Russia's moving into that AOR, there's, uh, there was a lot of dynamics going on there for sure. But that was the first one. The, I'm trying to think to 2018 timeframe. Cause I was there, tw- you know, 14, 15, not at Jabber, right. But flying the same AO for the most part. Were you guys seeing um, the Russians? So did they bring in the Su-57? They brought Su-35s when we were there, which was kind of spicy and at least gained some awareness. But, you know, we had Big Brother Raptor that was hanging out. Were you guys still operating a lot in, in Syria and Iraq? Yeah, I mean, that's that's mainly 
uh, we did the most in Syria. Like we really didn't do a ton in Iraq. It was, you know, kind of the, the tribe border region between Syria, Jordan and Iraq. There was, um, you know, uh, a lot of stuff going on there. And really, you know, it, you know, you, you kind of learn the history behind why you're doing some of this, because, you know, that's what a lot of guys are like, Oh, I don't even know, like why we're here, you know, like, why do we, you know, why do we care about this? And outside of ISIS, you know, and it's like Syria had just gone through like a, a pretty, uh, I, I would say a, a pretty horrific civil war where there, there's definitely a lot of like, um, horrible things happening like that. That's what was eye opening as, as a, a relatively, young fighter pilot i I think i just upgraded to flight leap before we left and so it was like man i I still don't know a lot but like i'm gonna lead someone else in combat and you get over there into the that environment and you're like dude this is like this is horrible like what is going on relatively speaking within the world that most americans have no clue um you know, one of the missions we had was just to basically cap in this region to protect like this refugee camp of 2 million people that had nowhere to go. And it's like, you're, you're looking down, like at, uh, down at the ground and you're like, dude, what in the world is going on, man? Uh, at least I can be a, a part to help, but like still what in the world is happening? You know, it's kind of wild. And you think, you know, I showed up in 2014 there, but ISIS was all over the news. So people were aware, but it is, it's not funny, but it quickly drops off the radar and people are focused about, you know, whatever else, gas prices, et cetera. But in 2018, yeah, four years later, still to this day, like horrific things are happening and you don't, you don't hear about it. Vice news actually did a pretty good documentary and it, it might have been, I saw about three months ago and the reporter, she was going through some of these refugee camps and this year and obviously the conditions in those refugee camps are just abysmal. So if I find myself complaining, you can, I can quickly shut myself up. The problem that is there and has always been there and it's going to be there. This reporter, she's Muslim. She's going through and she's interviewing people. The problem in that camp they had were women teaching and indoctrinating young kids into the ISIS ideology, you know, pursuing a path of, you know, going out there and killing the infidels. But this reporter at the end of it, it closes out. She's maybe like 15, 20 feet away from this group, you know, eight to 12 year old boys. And she's asking them questions. So they're shouting kind of back and forth. And, you know, she asks like, would you kill me? And, they said, absolutely. Like that's their objective is to kill her and everyone else that she associates with. Um, and it's kind of scary, but that stuff is that that is going on. The world is obviously not a very happy place and there's a lot of dynamics going on out there. So it's, it's wild. It's wild to be flying over that. Yeah. I, I mean, it, it was, it was, uh, it was shocking, man. I, I don't know how many I don't know what your first like experience was like going into that like part of the world, but I would say it was most shocking for me. It's kind of a funny story. So like we're I'm part of the AOS. We're flying. Uh, we stop in uh, lodges for a night. We take off at a lodges at like two in the morning, which was 
could have been like the most, the scariest thing I've ever done in life because there was like no stars and it's like complete black, like sea. And so you feel like you're flying into like space. It's like, dude, I have no clue where I'm at. Like, I hope I don't just like, you know, I hope this works out. I need to, I need to maintain this radar lock and I hope the sun comes up quick. So we get over the med and, uh, our, our like third tanker drops out. They're like, oh man, like we're trying to get out of Athens and like we're hard broke, like surprise. Right. Yeah. And so, uh, the, the cell lead razor Pira, I don't know if you know him, but he's like, all right, boys, uh, He's like, Croc, you, you start running numbers on gas. Make sure we got enough gas to get to, you know, our missed, missed refueling base. He's like, but it's going to come down to either Suda Bay or Sigonella. So let's start talking. Who wants to go to Italy? Who wants to go to Greece? <laughs> and, dude, we all had the expectation that we were going to be landing in, like, the middle of the desert and, like, going to, like, some horrible, like, you know, little, like, you know, uh, trailer to live or sleep that night. And now we're making this really tactical decision of Italy or Greece. There's a lot of consternation, dude, but we, we basically decide we're going to Suda Bay because <laughs> it was the year, it was the <laughs> European spring, spring break, uh, which was really the driving factor. Problem solved. It's good essay on that. Time. Yeah, exactly. And so we land and we call back to the squadron commander and uh, I do, great gun story too. Like he's the weapons officer leading the squadron into like this deployment. So they, they've been Advon. They've been there for like three weeks and it was like, they're, they're basically like uh sandstorm season. So like they were sending pictures out on these group chats of like these horrific sandstorms, dude, like you couldn't even drive. And, uh, we get, we call back and we're like, Oh man, like we missed our tanker. And sure enough, like the youngest dude in the squadron posts on the same chat where everyone's like complaining about how horrible it is, this picture of like the beach. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, uh, dude, we, we ended up being there for like six, six to nine days cause they couldn't find another tanker. Um, so then the cell takes off to, to finally join the fight and my fuel gauge doesn't work as we're starting up. And so it was like a food fight between like two of the more senior dudes who's saying back like with Croc. <laughs> <laughs> and sure enough, it was nasty Beckham. Uh, he's like, he win, wins the little like Rochambeau. And so we stayed like in Suda Bay for like a whole nother like 10 days. It was insane, man. It was like the first like half of my deployment was there. Not that, not realistically, but it was a while. So we take off. I had like I had gotten used to beach life by then, man. Like we were loving life. Yeah, that's and the right. rest of the squadrons just you know like hating everything that's happening. And so we finally take off out of Suda Bay, man. And we, uh, I'll never forget it, man. We're holding fifty miles north of the base as one of these epic sandstorms are coming through. We're holding like basically in IFR conditions for sand. And I remember asking like nasty, I'm like, dude, what is happening? And he's like, our lives just got 100% worse, dude. <laughs> and like, you're looking out and it, like, as a dude who'd never been in that part of the world, I'm like, oh my gosh, this is horrible. 
know? <laughs> that's, that's brutal. The, uh, <laughs> that's like, the, Hey, welcome. Especially like ripping the bandaid off. I would say I did, I flew over on the AOS, uh, not the AOS bird. I flew on, you know, the seven, four, seven or whatever. You got rotated <laughs> for our yeah. deployment. Yeah. Ro- yeah. The rotator. I was like, what is that thing we call it? Uh, blank there. We had two jets, tactical and Von Finkenstein. They got stuck on the AOS movement in Rota, and they got stuck because Israeli overflight. Like it took for it took like fourteen days to get their dip clearances. But meanwhile, it is like, I mean, we are full on. Everyone is coming back, cleaning the rails, every single sortie, and they're just like seeing it in the group chat. I think Tack went into depression, and then he gets there, and he is like the one dude, just wrong place, wrong time for like the first like five sorties or something like he has not dropped the bomb, you know? And like we, we had, that's what we had. It was a belt of shame, which is probably highly inappropriate, but it was the last person to drop to have not dropped. You had to wear this like pink reflective belt, walk around the base. It was just crazy. I mean, it was a crazy time, different times. And so he was stuck with that belt for a little bit, but he did get to enjoy Spain for a little bit. That sounds like Suda Bay was a better choice for you guys. Dude, we were sitting on the beach, Nasty and I, and uh, just hanging out. And I was like, man, I am so ready to get out of here. I was like, dude, I want to be like with the bros. I want to be like flying like combat lines every day. They were doing like a, a decent amount. It wasn't like quite like what you're describing, but they were they were still like doing stuff. And I'm like, dude, I'm so ready. And he looked at me and he's like, Croc. This is probably going to be the most epic vacation of your life. The war can wait. And I was like, <laughs> I was like, no, you don't get it, man. And he's like, dude, you're an idiot. Like, this is awesome. Like, where we're at is awesome. <laughs> yeah, grow where you're planted, man. That's that's that, that's awesome. <laughs> Did you guys do? You guys had ninety days there, right? But was that the one with the windstorm that did a bunch of damage to the jets? Yeah, so that was to Duluth. That happened right before we showed up. Um, yeah, that was that was bad, man. I think I don't know how they managed. Um, I don't know how they got all the the jets like back out of there. But like, I think it was like basically putting you know pieces of airplanes back onto like a C seventeen to bring home to put back together type deal. That happened like right as we were showing up and the, the, the sandstorms, there were ho- horrible, man. I don't know if you've ever been to Jabber, but like it, it was an old, uh, old, well, it still is a Kuwaiti like air force base, but it was one of the ones that Saddam bombed, like right as Gulf war was, was starting. So you would drive past like all these like huge houses, man. And you could see like these, these, um, these huge, like they, that bombed out sections of them. And, and really what, what had happened is Saddam took over that air force base, uh, with force. And then I, I'm pretty sure that was one of the first strikes that F one seventeens did. And they dropped, you know, like these, the, the, you know, like all these bombs, like basically to take out Saddam's like air force. Um, it was kind of cool, man. There was a lot of history there and it was, it was a, a decent place like to fly out of. Yeah. Were you guys pretty, were you pretty busy during that time period? Yeah, we were. I mean, like you, you think about like right where the Euphrates like comes into to Iraq uh, and goes back up into into Syria. We were really busy, like kind of all throughout that area. Um, 
you know, there was, there was a lot of, uh, I would say a lot of like different dynamics. It was also like Russia was there. So you had like a pretty complicated, like pretty comp complicated decision matrix, like to, to really like describe it in the best layman's terms, as far as like, Hey, you see something bad, like here's, you know, 20 different ways you could handle this situation depending on who that is. And I was like, Oh my gosh, dude, like <laughs> this is, there's a lot of different like political and like socioeconomic dynamics going on in that part of the world for sure. Yeah. Between the, the Kurds, the Turks, the Syrians, the Russians, us, the Iranians, like there's a lot of dynamics. It's just waiting to boil over. Um, that's yeah, it's it's a it's a spicy place to be involved for sure. I always said too, you know, like flying over the Euphrates, I don't know, it's uh, varies, but especially up in like in Syria, like near Kobani, my solution to all this was like you just drop a bunch of jet skis on the Euphrates. It's so beautiful flying over that. Like it's I mean it'd be so epic and who can be angry on a jet ski? I can't tell me one person, you know? Yeah, I don't know who would be, man, but like, so we were flying, uh, it was one night we were out there and it was like a mix of like, you would do a mix of like DCA, uh, and you do like a little bit of like, you know, Hey, we're watching the Russians, they're watching us. And then we kind of got like this, you know, no fly zone type deal going. And then you, you would do, you know, like a decent amount of casts, which is, you know, what we were doing to support the, the JTACs as we were trying to take out ISIS. And so we were out there, it was like, you know, two, three in the morning and like everyone's kind of bored and there's not like a lot going on. One of the JTACs is like, dude, you want to see something that's like pretty epic? And I'm like, well, like epic as far as like you want to like do something like cool or like do i just want to see something cool he's like no like it'll actually make you laugh but like in the next week we're gonna like basically take all this out so you get to see it like before it happens i'm like all right cool he's like all right here's the coordinates and we get the targeting pods on them and so there it's like this row down this this dirt road right outside the city that's it's just a row of like probably half a mile of like washing machines and I'm like, are those washing machines? And he's like, yeah, man, they are. Isn't that cool? And I'm like, what? He's like, dude, they're they're loading these washing machines up with like explosives, and they're going to basically like line them along these roads and use them as like IEDs. And I'm like, what? Like that's pretty strange. So he's like, well, the better question is, is like, where do you find a washing machine in this part of the world? And I'm like, that's valid, man. Like. That's so, <laughs> also a great question. I don't. I didn't see any like you know <laughs> Sears up the road. You know, it's like where did they find like sixty nine yeah. <laughs> washing machines? I remember flying over. I didn't talk to anyone who actually got involved in the Mosul offensive. When we were there, we dropped a couple bombs like on the outskirts, and it looked like it was just kind of heating up. And it might have been the fourteenth or the the shooters after them. We would just fly over Mosul, and they were just building. It was all day long just with excavators and bulldozers building a berm around the entire city, which is a big city. So, but I also was like, you know, we're like flying over you. Like it's not the medieval times of building a dam and stuff. So like, there's just some like weird things that would go on for sure. 
Yeah, I've never understood like hiding under a tree. Like, I guess that kind of helps, but it's like it's not going to like the tree's not going to do much for you, dude. Like the the my first drop was like on a, a mortar team that was like, you know, there, there was like um, some it was there. It was basically a mortar team that was lobbing mortars into this like U.S. coalition um, outbase fob, so to speak, and. Like as soon as they, you could tell that they heard us and we're still, you know, like 25,000 feet, but you, they could hear like jets. And so they literally like pick up this, this mortar tripod and they move it like two feet under this tree. And like the dude kind of looks up and he's like, yeah, like you're never going to find me now type deal. And it's like, bro, I'm like literally one radio call from like dropping two of these <laughs> jdams and you're going to be smoked like that tree's not going to do anything <laughs> it was and we ended up I, we ended up dropping on them and taking them out which was uh which was cool to see an instant impact like on your first drop like you can hear the dude on yeah. the radio in the fob like you can hear like the the sirens going off type deal you know who's doing it and it's like okay i get to be a part of this kill chain and the tree's not going to save you yeah, it's just going to give me a mark to really help <laughs> to, to make sure I don't miss you. Yeah. Did you do Afghanistan too in a deployment or? So that was the last one uh, that we were on. So we went back to the same AO, different base um, two years later. So 2020 and uh, we were doing all the same, the same areas and Afghanistan at the same time. And that was, that was kind of right during the heart of the, the pull out so to speak from afghanistan so um it was the last you know couple of days that guys were in afghanistan trying to get out of there how was that that had to be some emotions involved with it but also kind of i mean yeah different time i imagine the roes are probably pretty restrictive there's some question marks over your guys' heads yeah i mean that was that was rough man um i think it, it was sad in in my mind. I, I'll, I'll give you my personal opinion. It was sad to see, you know, something. It, it, it's almost like watching like a, a, a dude like on his, his flug upgrade and, and you sit through the brief and you're like, dude, this is never going to work. And then you see him like trying to execute it in the air and it's almost like painful to watch. You're like, oh my gosh, dude, this is horrible. And it's just, you're like losing hardcore. It was like, that's the only analogy I could think of, like from a fighter pilot term, man. Like it was just, there was nothing that was like going right with it, you know? And it was like, come on, man. Like we could do better than this. Uh, and, and you didn't have a clear cut answer as to why it was like going so poorly, you know? Were you guys, I mean, were you guys there like during August, like the last final days, or were you just there the last couple months? Uh, I think the last, we were there in July. Yeah, you guys are yeah, right there at the end. I man, it's so frustrating to to see how that went down, but yeah, it, it really is, and it, it's a long time to sit in a, a single seat airplane, man. That 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 would be the negative. Personally, professionally, the negative is how poorly it all went. You know. Yeah, absolutely. On the personal note, what was that trek? Because you guys had to come up the boulevard, I would imagine. Yeah, I mean, you fly all the way, you fly all the way around Iran, and then you know, go you know up north, like uh, to hit to hit Afghanistan. It was like 
I want to say like four ish hours. Um, so, I mean, you'd be showing up and you're like, Oh gosh, I mean, like, you know, I've already burned breakfast, lunch, and I'm like working on, you know, my dinner snacks. And like, I got no more, <laughs> I got no more piddle packs. Like, dude, this is going to go really poorly. <laughs> I'm not even halfway through this deal. How long were your voles up there? If you're flying four hours there, four hours back. Uh, they were, I think they were typically like two hours, uh, depending on like if, if you got extended or anything like that. So, I mean, it was, oh man, it was like, it's a lot of, yeah, it's a lot of a long day and a lot of go pills, man. Yeah. Was it kinetic there in those last couple months? Not at all. Yeah. Um, which was the other sad part. I mean, you, you just saw the Taliban like taking over stuff that like we'd spent, you know, the past 20 years of our, you know, blood, sweat and tears trying to help this country stand stuff up. And you saw it just being like, you know, overrun. And you were just like, eh, well, you know, there wasn't much to do, which that, that sucked, you know? Yeah. The only positive I've heard out of this, cause it's pretty depressing, at least for me. And I think a lot of people, yeah, like two decades and this is what it comes to. But the one positive was from a retired Green Bray. And he said, you know, held the space for 20 years, which hopefully will afford opportunity for people to resist. But man, yeah, you know, there's some heinous stuff that is going on still t- to this day and will go on for a long time. Um, if it's not, not interrupted, it's frustrating, but again, here we are. Yeah, there's, there's, yeah, it is frustrating. I would say that. I hate to end on like that type of note. I always ask my guest croc, if you found like 15, 16 year old, you maybe I need to back that up to like 12 or 13 based on the fact that at 15, you had an internship in a fighter squadron. Is there any advice you would, you would uh, give him, tell him to do something different, change things up. I, I would say one of the biggest lessons um, that I've, I've, I feel like I still am learning like consistently like through life is, is to never like uh, never judge something too quickly and make a decision like in haste based off your initial dis- judgment. And so, you know, I, I would say that's something that like, I'm still learning how to do like before you fully commit like to something or you, you fully like make a decision on, on what the situation is, make sure you have like all the facts and you've given your yourself the opportunity to like process that. Um, I, I don't know if 12 year old croc would have like really understood that he probably would have been like, all right, that sounds dumb. Uh, however, it, it's a lot of like knowing as a fighter pilot, you know, this, like there's, there's definitely like some things you do really quickly. Um, at, at times there's decisions you need to make really fast, but there's also like a, a high level of like being patient and like waiting, like almost like cold ops, man, like getting into cold ops and just saying, all right, like, let's take time. Let's figure out like what the, the problem is that we're about to solve, be patient, and then make a decision as to what, what the right choice is. Yeah, absolutely. Easier said than done. And you're not the the first person to say, I don't know if like 12 or 13 year old croc would actually listen. So I think that's kind of fair uh, as well, but you never know. That's not an easy thing too, is just be, be patient assess information and make, you know, a timely decision based upon the environment you're in. So cold ops is a good expression, a good, good way of uh, 
describing that. And again, for those who don't know, there's a lot that goes into that hot and cold ops, but he's talking air to air, hot when you're pointing at the enemy, slinging missiles, cold ops. You got your back turned to them, letting the picture settle out, figuring out what what the problem is behind you, and then turning in and, and handling the problem there. So I think that's good. You know, Croc, I did, as I was thinking, um, with asking that, I should have teed it up. So I failed you to like give you like a little warning there, but it's always fun to do that. We didn't really talk um, about the foundation. We have a lot of podcast episodes that are going to talk about the foundation. Can you real quick kind of maybe talk about your background with guns and what led to creating the foundation? Yeah. So, I mean, guns, uh, guns, Garen was, uh, he was the first person I met when I, I got out to McIntyre. Um, so we, we quickly, you know, it's, it, you could probably relate with that rain, like where there's like, you know, certain, uh, certain personalities like within a fighter squadron that you, you mesh with like kind of instantly and you're like, Hey, like we're not only going to be like, you know, good, uh, professional, like friends, like at work, but like, we're going to probably hang out on the weekends and like, you know, throw some beers back and talk about life. And so guns was one of those friends, like to a lot of people within this, this squadron, but, um, he was, uh, you know, uh, a graduated weapons school, uh, instructor and, and highly talented and very dedicated to like the, the swamp Fox in general and to his family, even more so than that. And so in, in, uh, 2020, he, uh, had some medical complications with a, uh, a procedure that he had gotten done for AFib, which was kind of a weird time in our squadron because there were a lot of guys that were dealing with like that AFib, like kind of heart thing. Uh, and so he went and got the procedure done and, and got sick, man. And he passed away like in the, the midst of like COVID, like the worst days. And so, you know, I, I tell a lot of people that ask me about the foundation, like that's the background of like how we get to like the start of, of where we are now, which is like his sudden passing and looking at that tragedy. And, and that was really the first person that I, I, had in my life that I was really close to outside of, uh, family that I had seen pass away. And, and that really all out of nowhere, man. I mean, it's like, we were just hanging out two days ago and like, you're gone. Um, I'll never forget it, man. Like Baldy and I were (laughs) the mayor scribe duo. And I'll tell you, like, I'm going to be humble. Like I was a pretty good scribe and Baldy was like, a fairly average mayor. Now I, I say that because it was, it was probably the worst combination you could have because I'm, I'm fairly like, you know, I don't got a like a lot of emotion going on here and it's like, all right, recap the story. And it's like, I don't know, man, that was a horrible story. Like, what do you want me to tell you? No recap. You know, like, <laughs> so we're, we're about to kick off this epic naming and guns was, uh, was honestly supposed to be there and uh i'll never forget it man the squadron commander walked in and he's like dude roll calls canceled namings canceled the flight doc got up and was like hey you know guns was hospitalized today um we don't know why we're trying to figure out what's going on and keep them in your thoughts and prayers and you could just feel you know leading up to a roll call like emotion is at like you know 169 percent 
And then the room just like dropped. They were like, holy, like what is going on? And that was just him getting hospitalized. That's the effect that he had like on the squadron. So, um, you know, the realization was the outcome. There's just, there's certain things in life that you can't control. And as a fighter pilot, you think that you can control everything. And that was, that was really the, the first time as well, where it was like, dude, there are just things in life that are out of my hands and his passing away. There's nothing that any of us could have done about it. Like it was his, uh, you know, I guess, you know, his time to go, even though it was way too early, you know? And so I asked myself, like, what can I do? What is within my control? Uh, and what I can do is make sure that his legacy lives on, but even more so I can help make sure that like military members who are going through tough times, um, have support, whether it's just someone standing beside him and saying, Hey, I support you, or it's helping them financially. And so that's why we started the foundation. Uh, we started it to help military members and veterans who are going through a hard time, you call it the worst time of their life, or just maybe they're struggling to make ends meet. We want to be that helping hand and help serve them and make sure that they know that they're not alone. So, you know, it's our, our second year, little over second year of, of running this thing. It's, uh, it's been really honestly humbling and encouraging to see not only people's support, like, financially for the foundation, but then to be able to turn around and, and be able to help people that are going through some really hard times in life. And, uh, to be able to tell like the story of guns to those people is, is pretty powerful as well. Yeah, it's huge. I, I was honored to just be up there for the golf tournament and see what, what you guys have done in such a short time span. I would say it's, it's impressive. It's not surprising that a bunch of fighter pilots were able to come together and solve some complex problems and put some things together that are completely out of your wheelhouse. Cause I doubt you went to school to be how to stand up a foundation, but I saw the impact that you've had just in such a short period of time. And I think it's important to hit on like, yeah, helping veterans out in their time of need. And fortunately we're in a society where I think that gets thrown out there a good bit. There are a lot of foundations out there that are doing things, but you guys have kept your bylaws. I think rather uh, open so that you're not pigeonholed into this cri- specific criteria set has to be met in order to help a veteran out uh, in need, which is pretty awesome. Can you talk a little bit, I guess, kind of what, what the foundation really can do and, and where you think it might be going? Yeah. So I'm glad that you brought that up. So you, you see, there's a lot of, one of the things that was frustrating to me, like, as I started thinking about like really getting into this like space, so to speak, was like, there's a lot of people that like, when it's convenient, say like, Oh yeah, like we're all about the military, man. Like we're all about like supporting veterans and it's like lip service. And it's like, do you know, um, like are you going to put like any weight behind those words is, is a really good way to put it. And so when we were making those bylaws and, and we were, we were figuring out like, Hey, what are we going to do and how are we going to do it? What we, we were adamant about doing is making sure that we gave ourselves the flexibility to be able to like really put like some weight behind the fact that we said like, we are going to help people out when they need help. And it would be foolish of us to, to, to think that we could tell the future and know 
like, hey, man, we know veterans are only going to be needed to help and helped in this way. And so this is what we're going to say we're going to do. So we did give ourselves a lot of flexibility. We can help like anyone who's been in the military, anyone who currently is in the military or any family member. And so that looks like um, you know, a lot of different things for a lot of different people. But what it consistently looks like is a need is brought to us from within that community. And we have the flexibility to say like, yes, we are 100% behind helping you get through this time or helping meet that need. Uh, so that looks like, you know, stuff we're doing right now, buying groceries for a family to, to try and help meet ends. Uh, we we're helping pay a mortgage for, for, uh, someone who's going through a really hard time. Um, we've, we've helped with funeral costs. We've helped with, um, just financial aid in general of people that are coming back from a deployment and maybe like their, their finance like is all screwed up and they're, you know, they're not getting paid correctly. They've reached out and said, Hey, could you help servicemen who are either currently deployed or like coming back from a deployment and, and maybe they're not getting paid correctly. We can step in and say, all right, like we're going to make sure we're doing that right now. Like, honestly, uh, for, for quite a few military members who've, who just got back from being deployed, their pay system is kind of screwed up and they're, they're worried about getting their families through the holidays, man. Like that's what they're, they're worried about. They're like a, a 20 year old airman who doesn't make like money to begin with. And now they're not getting paid. And it's like, yeah, that's a travesty that like the system is set up that way, or there's a failure of the system, but like I can help just ease the pain, man. And that's, that's the thing that like we're really committed to is it, so often in the in the military you're taught like to show strength no matter what so it could be the worst situation ever and you're you're going to be strong man like you're going to execute the mission which i think is good but at the at the same time like it's it's okay to like ask for help and, and it's okay to say like hey i need help to get through this time in my life and then for us to be the organization that is 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 right there to say like we are gonna help and we're committed to helping you is it, really cool. Um, it, it's it it is one of the the coolest things that I've done up until this point in my life is is saying I'm going to start a foundation that's dedicated just to to giving to people who are in hard times of need, and, and, and really it's the whole squadron has been a, a huge part of what we're doing. So. It's not just me doing it. No, I know it's a, it's definitely a team effort, but it's really cool to see what you guys have been able to accomplish and just actually see and meet people who are on the receiving end, who are going through a tough time that you guys have been able to help out. If people, one, either need help or two, they just want to get involved with the foundation, what's a good way for them to find out more info or get involved? Yeah. So if it's someone that needs help or someone that wants to give, the easiest way to do that is to go to gunsgarin.com. Uh, you can see the work that we're doing on social media at gunsgarin, uh, Instagram, Facebook. We've got a YouTube channel, but you can see really the easiest way to stay in tune with what we're doing is to follow us on Instagram or Facebook and then go to the website. You, you click, uh, if you need help, you click the apply for aid and tell us uh, who you are and what you need. And we usually get uh, monetary funds back out to people within 24 to 48 hours. Um, and then if you want to donate, you just hit the donate button on the, on the 
website and um, you know, we, we encourage people to be a, a monthly giver and, you know, I know times are tight, but really, even if it's just five or 10 bucks a month that you can say, Hey man, like I'm going to help these guys on a monthly basis, be consistent. That can help us give consistently to the people who are in need. Yeah. It's awesome stuff. So again, this is slightly out of order for the normal podcast, but again, this is, you know, it's good to hear croc your background, your story and kind of how you flow into this. But I think it's such an awesome thing you guys are doing. That's why we're doing so many episodes around, essentially centered around the foundation and what you guys may be able to, to accomplish and go out there and honor guns and help a lot of people out. So I really appreciate it. Any parting shots before we separate here? No, I mean, we, we thank, uh, as a foundation, we're, we, thanks for getting the word out and, and giving us the opportunity to to just tell people about what we're doing. And then... Uh, you know, thanks for, for what you're doing for helping, you know, people tell their stories. So uh, we've enjoyed it. Awesome. Croc, I really appreciate it, man. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you want to learn more about Guns Gear and Memorial Foundation, or if you want to join us at Sunday Fun, click the links down below and hopefully see you at the end of March.